Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. Hello, ahoy, welcome along. It's a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan. I'm so pleased you've found us. You've stumbled upon the smartest show in the history of the universe. We search out all the science secrets that no one is brave enough to go near. In this episode, you can hear more about Mission Transmission. It's our record-breaking radio show where you can send your voice to space. And this week, we'll chat to someone who has tried something similar before, but a bit more old school. We'll hear from the artist John Lomberg, who once sent a golden record to space over 40 years ago. A message in the form of a phonograph record, an old-style LP phonograph record that contained uh, music and sounds and pictures recorded in a complicated way, but we think a way aliens could figure out trying to give a picture of what the Earth was like. Also, you can hear from our science superhero, Karina, and her superhero, alter ego, K-Mystery. This week, they're looking at how oceans absorb carbon dioxide. Other marine life do their part by eating up those microorganisms and pooping them out, where they fall to the ocean floor, trapping the CO2 safely out of harm's reach. Hey, poop power! And I'll answer some of your questions as always. This week, they're about feeling sick and eye colour. First up, let's catch up with Sir Sidney McSprocket. He's one of our favourite geniuses. Every week, he tells us about different inventors, how they've inspired him and the things they've created which have changed the world. Today, it's all about two great British minds, G.M. Gilbert, who powered a carriage in a very windy way, and Jane Nigelquintich, who found a new way to stick things together. Sir Sidney McSprocket's Great British Minds. Oh, hello, Sir Sidney McSprocket here. Now, I'm lucky to come from a fine line of inventors. Uh, my mother, in particular, was renowned for her musical badger brush. And that encouragement has meant that I'm not afraid to experiment. And I've always had very tidy hair. Now, remember, to be a great mind, if something goes well, that's tremendous. And when things go... Ugh, less well. Well, you just try again and don't give up. Think of all the amazing creations that would never have seen the light of day if it wasn't for great minds courageously continuing to create, invent and design. As we have seen, the Great Exhibition in London in 1851 was a great opportunity to celebrate great British minds. Folk came from all over the country, and indeed from across the world, to see the latest inventions. And one of the most popular exhibits was the Pilot Kite, designed by G. M. Gilbert. Gilbert, who came from Ealing in London, created a carriage that was drawn by kites. 
rather large kites. He calculated that using kites around five meters wide could move a carriage containing four or five people. Well, at least on a windy day. Now, think of how inspiring that must have seemed in a time when the only non-horse-drawn vehicles were steam-powered. Our modern-day great British mind is not only inspiring, but has inspired people everywhere to be creative and fix the objects they use every day. Let me introduce Janie Gullquanty. From Ireland, Jane is the inventor of Sugru, an innovative moldable glue that sticks to almost anything and turns into strong, flexible rubber overnight. It can form a strong bond with a huge range of different materials, including aluminium, steel, ceramics, glass, wood, and other materials, including some plastics and rubber. It was invented for people looking to not only repair, but improve the things they use every day. Fixing things is very important if we want to use fewer of the Earth's resources. But Jane also wanted people to enjoy the achievement of fixing things and to use Sugru to make changes to gadgets and objects, even toys, to make them work better for themselves. From making modifications to customised handles on sports equipment to attaching watches onto wheelchairs and even adding shock-absorbing bumpers to digital gadgets so children can safely use them without worrying about damage. It's all about feeling empowered to make changes yourself so you and the people around you can use things in a way that works for you. With a Fixers Manifesto, Jane and the Sugru community are really inspiring others to save resources by extending the life of objects and make changes to make objects work better for them. A great British mind indeed. And the terrific thing is you can be a fixer too. Especially if you're the sort of person who doesn't give up easily and who keeps trying. And talking of trying, I'm having one last go at this little creation here. It's a turbo fan to dry the dishes. Capable of speeds in excess of 400 miles an hour. No more drying the pots for me. Oh. Mostly as there are no pots now. Back to the drawing board. Never give up. Patty bye for now. Sir Sidney McSprockett's Great British Minds. With support from the Royal Commission 1851. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash McSprockett. It's so amazing to hear about incredibly inspiring scientific brains. You can learn about loads more with Sir Sidney McSprocket over at funkidslive.com. Right now, it's time to answer some of your sciencey questions. If there's something rattling around your brain that you just can't figure out, maybe something you heard at school, on the playground, even by your teacher, and you're thinking, there's no way that can be true, let me figure it out for you. Just leave it as a review on Apple Podcasts. First up this week is from Emily, who is eight, who says, why do people sometimes feel sick when they shut the car door on their hand? 
I guess you mean, Emily, why when something hurts so much do we feel like we want to throw up? Because that happens, doesn't it? Ever happened to you when something really painful's gone on and you're feeling queasy, you just feel like you want to get it all out? Emily, it's because when you have extreme pain, your body goes into a hyperactive state. It's on red alert. It's on DEFCON 5. It's worried about what's going to happen next. And it all gets a bit much. Also, being sick is a way of your body protecting itself. It's trying to get rid of harmful foods, maybe, or something that may be poisonous. That's your natural reaction. So when you're in a lot of pain and there's a lot going on, what naturally happens, it gets a bit confused in the chaos and you just want to get stuff out. You want to get rid of everything that might be hurting you. Thank you for the question, M. This one is from Ella in Ireland, who, who has seen cats with two different coloured eyes and wants to know... Can humans have those too? Yes, they can, Ella. It's called heterochromia. Just under 1% of the population have it. It makes you rare and it makes you special. It's usually in your genes. So it's more than likely someone else in your family will have two different eye colours and these get passed down through the generations. So maybe your grandma had it, maybe your great granddad, and it gets passed down through DNA. Also, sometimes it's caused through injury. The colour of your eye is determined by the amount of pigment called melanin there is in there. That colours your hair too. And sometimes injury can affect that. And it tends to be that the more melanin you have in your eyes, the darker the colour is too. But sometimes you've got more in one, less in another. And that's all because of your DNA, Ella. Thanks for the question. If there's something sciencey that you want answered next week on the show, leave it as a review for us over on Apple Podcasts. We are so excited by Mission Transmission. It's our record-breaking radio show that will travel forever through the universe. It might be listened to by aliens in four years, maybe 40 years, maybe even four billion years, and you can get involved over at funkidslive.com. Something similar has been done before. It was a bit more old school. Uh, There was a space probe sent out in the 1970s, and it carried copies of a golden record. On it was loads of information to explain the Earth and humans and how we do things uh, to aliens, should they ever find it. Now, you can hear from the person that designed that in just a sec. First up, let's find out more about what was actually on there with Flex, who is a science coordinator at the We The Curious Science Museum in Bristol. So we have these four beautiful symphonies going all the way to these really simple a cappella songs and lots of chants from, from tribes that were um, volunteering to take part in this. And we also have recordings of different um, uh, man-made objects and, uh, and different uh, things from nature as well. So we have some recordings of birds, hyenas and elephants too. Loads of things for these aliens to explore if they are able to access the golden record. So as well as this music, the golden record contained lots of images, lots of photographs about our planet. So we have a few examples here. This is my favourite one because it's a very strange-looking picture. The purpose of this picture was to demonstrate how human beings eat. So there's a picture of someone licking an ice cream. Then there's a man eating a piece of toast... And then there's someone pouring a big bottle of water into his mouth. And it looks like a bit of a strange picture, but it is deliberately there to show how we consume. And then what else do we have on here? We also have lovely diagrams of the human body there. Pictures of fishermen working away in Greece. 
and pictures of close-ups of leaves of different plants and animals. There's a barn being built there. You can see how we construct buildings. So it's really the, the intention of the Golden Record was to kind of give as thorough explanation as possible for what life is like on Earth and what we had achieved thus far when the probe was launched in the 70s. I wonder, as I look at this, I do wonder what would have been put on this record if it was released now? What would we have added in the time since? It's so exciting because considering how far away we must be from any aliens who might be out there because we have yet to find them so we have to assume that they are really far away if they do exist if they were to access this record and if they were to come and visit us what would earth be like by the time they arrived would we still be here you know what would our culture look like would our music sound completely different it already sounds completely different would we even use a record would we even use a record would there people be a, would there be people around who remember how to use a record player you know so there's so many exciting questions that are awoken by the golden record i could honestly talk about the golden record all day <laughs> Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. You're listening to Fun Kids. Now, this year, we are sending your messages to the stars, to space. And in the next few weeks, we're getting ideas. We're getting help from all sorts of experts. Today, it's from someone who has pretty much been there and done it. John Lomberg is an artist. He was involved in the creation of Voyager Golden Records, a Curiosity Sundial as well. He joins us today from Hawaii. John, thank you for being there. My pleasure, Dan. Now, you've been involved in Voyager Golden Records, the Curiosity Sundial. Without bogging us down with all of this, I mean, we can do this ourselves. Um, what, what, what was the purpose of Voyager Golden Records? How is it trying to explain us as humans on planet Earth, our position in the universe? There was a mission launched in 1977 called Voyager, which had two spacecraft and their mission was to explore the outer solar system. But in the process of doing that, they were going to leave the solar system and never come back. So kind of as an afterthought, somebody said, well, suppose in the distant future, somebody else finds these spacecraft. They're not going to come back to Earth. They're not going to even orbit the sun. They're going to just go out into the galaxy and most likely drift forever between the stars. They probably never crash into anything. Uh, but maybe there are other beings that can travel between the stars and might find either of the spacecraft someday. So in case that happened, uh, NASA let us put together a, uh, a message in the form of a phonograph record, an old style LP phonograph record that contained uh, music and sounds and pictures recorded in a complicated way, but we think a way aliens could figure out trying to give a picture of what the Earth was like. That wasn't the purpose of the Voyager mission. As I said, it was very much an afterthought. And it was, well, 
if they do find it and there isn't a message on it, they'd really be annoyed because if we found something like this, what we'd want to know is who made it. So the record is really kind of the, uh, the answer to the question of who made this spacecraft. You said there you, you put together things on a record in a way that you would think aliens can interpret it. Uh, how are you figuring that out? I mean, aliens by definition are something completely different to us. How do we know if they understand binary code and different pulse rates? Talking to aliens is hard because we've never done it. <laughs> and the few times we've had a chance to try to do it here on Earth, like dolphins or whales, who we're sure communicate in very complicated ways, but we really haven't been able to figure out their communication system. So it's a very good question. Maybe there are aliens, but how could we possibly hope to communicate with them? And I think the answer is that if they're alien dolphins, they'll be as hard to communicate with as our dolphins. But if they're in spacecraft, they have to think like us insofar as building spaceships, and that's hard to do. And as far as we know, it takes science and engineering and mathematics and technology to do it. So whatever they're like, if they're going to be in space and able to find these records, find these Voyager spacecraft, then they're good at technology. They're good at engineering. And I think they're good at figuring out mechanical things. And because we've given a, a series of playing instructions on the box that the record is in, and we've even supplied the needle, just like in an old style LP, you needed a needle to play it. Well, we've given them that needle and showed them how you put it on the record. The rest is really up to them. And uh, we'll never know if they could figure out, but starting with the fact that we share science and technology and the same physics that govern our universe, the same physical laws that make things work here, will be the same everywhere. We know they're the same everywhere. So aliens have to learn those same laws that we do. They have to study the same, you know, the same physics that we do. Just lastly on Voyager Golden Records, how on earth did you decide or help to decide what was going to go in the package, the record that you sent up to space. How were you trying to take all of humankind and human culture and put it in a little package that an alien might be interested in? Where did you start with that? You can't describe the earth in a hundred pictures, which is about what we had. You can't describe the earth in a thousand pictures, maybe not in a million pictures, but part of the, art of it is trying to find those things that really suggest the important things about the earth. And I bet if you ask any of your listeners to make a list of what 10 things would you want to show or what 20 things would you want to show in describing the earth? I bet you'd find that people said the same things. You want to show mountains, you want to show oceans, you want to show animals, you want to show cities. What to show was actually fairly easy to come up with. How to show it was harder. Because you have to remember, you were showing it to something that was intelligent but had never seen anything like it before. They didn't know what they were looking at. So my job was to try to think like an alien. My job was to pretend that I had never been to Earth. Maybe I'd been to other planets. And you start to think, well, what, does other, what do other planets have that we have? Well, we know from studying the other planets in our solar system that other planets have mountains. 
So mountains would be very easy for aliens to recognize. They'll probably have seen mountains before. I tried to find pictures of things that would be presented in a way that was easy as possible for an alien to understand as far as I could guess, pretending to be an alien myself. Is it right, does the record, does your part of the work, does it have a, an estimated lifespan of a billion years? So, I mean, something that you've helped to create could be the longest lasting work of human art ever. That's one of the amazing numbers involved with this project. The other number is we had six weeks to put it all together. It was hard. So you've been kind enough to just give us some tips and advice. This February, we are doing our own mission, mission transmission. We are sending our love letter to space. We're not sticking it on the back of a, a, vo- a Voyager that's just going to travel endlessly through the, uh, through the universe. We are doing it. We're beaming it from here on Earth. In your opinion, what do you think would be the best way to communicate who we are here on Earth through sound that aliens might understand. I might need you to pretend to be an alien again, John, if that's okay. What do you think? Well, one of the things that we thought on Voyager was that music is something that there are many reasons for thinking that aliens might have music and might like music. And even that that music might be similar enough to ours that they could understand it and like it. And the main, the main reason for that is that a lot of things about music are based on the physics of how sound works. When a guitar string vibrates, uh, you have these harmonics and overtones, the series of notes that the string makes. That's the same anywhere in the universe, if you vibrate a string. And a lot of our, the way we harmonize and the way we make music is based on things like those intervals from a vibrating string. So music isn't something completely arbitrary, at least human music, acoustic music. And the way we try to pattern the music, that may be unique to us. Will they like our our patterns? They won't understand our lyrics, that's for sure. But I think music is is one way to, to communicate. What's an important message, do you think, to send it to the aliens. If we were going to go along the lines of speech, if we were going to hope that these aliens are intelligent enough that they can figure out and translate different words from all around the universe, from different beings, what do you think in the year 2022 is an important message to send to these aliens about the state of things now, our place in the universe with words? The big difference between 1977 when we made the Voyager record and now is I think most people are now have a much more concerned view of the world and the state of the world and the future. I think that when we made the record, we had a much more positive outlook on how the future was going to be. And that positivity was reflected in the fact that one of the things that we did not show in our message was any of the bad stuff from Earth. No war, no poverty, no disease, no injustice. But beyond that, the idea that in in contacting somebody, think of it like uh, 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 you're looking to meet a friend. You don't start with what's worst about you. You try to lead, you know, put your best foot forward. So the idea was that our greeting, if we were presenting a picture of Earth, let's be positive. Let's present Earth on a good day. And some of the best of what we do, nothing of the worst of what we do. 
But I think now, if you ask most people, I would think that a message about Earth that didn't mention our big problems would be somehow dishonest and incomplete. Uh, everybody knows about the, the threats we face by climate change and other th threats from species extinction and many other uh, perils that some of which we've brought on to ourselves. And our management of the planet is in trouble. Uh, so if I could contact aliens, I might say, can you help us? You know, and again, it's kind of like a prayer for help, but our planet desperately needs help. So I think I'd want to do one of two things, either do what we did in Voyager and try to present. We're very flawed and we make a lot of mistakes and we do a lot of terrible things, but we do some wonderful things, too. So here are some of our best and wonderful things. Remember us for that. That's what we did on Voyager. But the other approach to be to say, I'm a person in this world and this world is in trouble and uh, base your message coming from that perspective. Lastly, if your work on Voyager is due to float across the universe for a billion years or so, do you expect it to ever reach an alien life form and be interpreted? Nobody knows how abundant alien life forms are. Nobody knows how many spaceships there are. The more they are, the more likely they'll find Voyager one of the voyagers and there are two of them but i think anybody would say that it seems like it's a bottle in the ocean you know people throw bottles in the ocean and most of them are never found but sometimes they are occasionally they are found so you always hope but even if they're not found the fact that something that we made that has some of the best of our music and some of our most beautiful scenes on earth that that will survive, kind of bearing witness that we were here, even if it's never found. That's almost more thrilling. The thousands and millions and billions and maybe even trillions of years from now, you know, something that came from Earth in the 20th century is still there. That's amazing. John, we can leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Dan. Thank you so much to John Lomberg, all the way from America, and to Flex for telling us more about the golden record sent out in two probes, Voyager 1 and 2, back in the 1970s. They are still travelling across the universe. You can find out how to get involved with our mission transmission at funkidslive.com. Right now, it's time for Dangerous Dan, where we look at some of the most mean and deadly things in the universe. This week, it's all about a spider one of the most dangerous looking on the planet. Now, when you think of a dangerous, deadly spider, you imagine a, a thick, hairy thing, don't you? Well, that's what this is. It's called the sack spider. And they're found all over the world, from Asia to Africa, everywhere in between. Now, they're not huge, but they're thick. And they've got an enormous abdomen, the lower part of their body, in between eight hairy legs. Now that's the thing with the sack spider, they're hairy beasts. With eight terrifying eyes in two rows, they get their name because they're known for building little dens by plants, little sacks to hide in. Uh, the thing is, they're known to bite randomly. They don't need to be threatened or to be attacked, they just lurch out and snap. And the sack spider bite is said to be extremely painful. It makes you bruise, it blisters with pus and with horrible yellow gunky scabs for a while. Now, thankfully, it's not too serious that you could die, 
but it hurts so much, people say. And for some reason, one type of the sack spider loves the smell of petrol and gasoline. So these critters are known to build nests by car engines. So perhaps when someone goes to tinker with their engine to fix something when it's broke, they might get a nasty sack spider bite for their troubles. And that's why it needs to go on our Dangerous Dan list. It's time to catch up with K-Mystery now. It's our series starring Karina and her superhero alter ego. Uh, In this series, they're looking at ways scientists are tracking climate change. Now, last week, we heard why chemists study the air to figure out ways to save the world. This time out, K-Mystery, she's helping Karina find out how our oceans absorb CO2 and why they're at risk from global warming. K-Mystery, chemistry and climate. Dad's been talking about climate change and how the ocean's important because it's a sink. But I'm not sure what he's talking about. The ocean's not a sink. Hi, Karina. Your chemistry superhero alter ego at your service. Your dad's right. The ocean is a sink. Probably the most important one we have. I don't get it. The oceans are sometimes called a carbon sink. That means they grab CO2 from the atmosphere and store it safely away. Forests, soil and plants are also carbon sinks, but in terms of size, oceans are a whopper. It's thought the ocean grab around a quarter of all the CO2 humans produce each year, which is an enormous 2 billion tonnes. So it's pretty important, especially when we're trying to get CO2 levels down, right? But how does it do that? Well, some CO2 is absorbed on the ocean's surface and some is gobbled up by algae and phytoplankton that live in the oceans. Other marine life do their part by eating up those microorganisms and pooping them out where they fall to the ocean floor, trapping the CO2 safely out of harm's reach. Hey, poop power! (laughs) So far, so good, right? Well, it would be if it wasn't for the menace of microplastics. Less than five millimetres long, they come from plastic waste and have been found almost everywhere on Earth, from the deepest oceans to the Antarctic. The problem is that they're very easy for marine life to swallow and that can make marine life sick or even die. Not just because it's not food, but because microplastics absorb pollutants which can then be transferred to the animal. Ew. And on to us if we eat them, I guess. It's possible, but remember... Food power! Yeah, of course. Well, microplastics that fish eat make their poop float, not sink. Which means the carbon from the algae and phytoplankton end up back near the surface instead of being safely trapped away. And that CO2 can end up back in the air. Another effect of climate change is that the water in the oceans is becoming more acidic And this is causing problems for the sea life that lives in them. Where's the acid coming from? Well, the ocean contains three types of carbon. Most is bicarbonate. 
small amount is carbonate and a tiny bit is carbon dioxide. As more CO2 from the atmosphere dissolves into the sea, the balance changes and the amount of carbonates is reduced by as much as 10% at the surface. The resulting chemical change leads to a more acidic solution. And this is bad news for shellfish and coral reefs, as they need carbonates to make their shells. So, what's the solutions? How can chemistry help? It's a balancing act. Acids and their opposite, alkalis, are like two ends of a seesaw. It's thought adding alkali rocks to ocean beds might help reduce the acidity to protect shellfish and the coral reefs. Or maybe we could introduce more types of algae and phytoplankton, or encourage growth of existing ones to increase the amount of CO2 they gobble up. And what about the microplastics? Well, chemists are right at the forefront of developing safer and more biodegradable materials to replace harmful plastics. So, in the future, these pesky particles won't be able to hang around causing havoc. But, you know, the very best way to reduce the acidity of oceans... Let me guess. Reduce the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. You've got it! By tackling the causes of climate change and reducing emissions, we can help keep our oceans healthy. And we can all play our part with that. And we're back. Thanks for the insight, chemistry. No problem. Always happy to help with a chemistry challenge. Online, you'll find a cool experiment where you can see the effects of acidification on marine life for yourself. Why not check it out? Chemistry, Chemistry and Climate, with support from the Royal Society of Chemistry. Find out more and get hands-on with chemistry at funkidslive.com slash chemistry. You can go on loads more science adventures with Karina and K-Mystery over at funkidslive.com and in the free Fun Kids app. Right now, it's time for this week's Science in the News. Sir Richard Branson's Virgin Orbit company launched another rocket into space last week. The booster rocket, which carried seven satellites, was sent into the sky from a jumbo jet over the ocean. A jumbo jet, much like the one that might have taken you on holiday, only instead of flying you to the beach, this dropped a rocket which powered away through the universe. Also staying in space, a team of scientists from around the world have made the most detailed 3D map of the universe ever. It's taken seven months. The Dark Energy Spectroscopic Instrument has broken all records before it and has made a map of the stars, uh, which has used data relating to 11 billion years ago, and it gives us a better understanding of dark energy. And finally, experts are working quickly to find out why a volcanic eruption in Tonga last week was so powerful. The devastating eruption caused destruction on the island, and scientists want to know why they didn't know the eruption would be so strong, and why there was a tsunami too. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. If you want to get involved with mission transmission to send your voice into space, you can do that by recording the answers to some very quick questions we've got at funkidslive.com. You can ask me your science questions as well over on the website uh, and by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
that's one of the best places you can hear loads of our podcasts by the way on Apple, Google, Spotify wherever you get your shows and Fun Kids we are a children's radio station from the UK listen all around the country on your DAB digital radio and over at funkidslive.com Hello everyone I'm Cressida Cowell author of How to Train Your Dragon and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series Which Way to Anywhere It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!